and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, welcome to Bent Tree. Uh, so glad you're here. Let's get our Bibles out. We're going to be in John chapter 6. Y'all were confused. We're always in chapter 6 these days. Well, happy Father's Day. Let me add my voice to, uh, to that. If, guys, we love it when you fight like men. Can I just tell you how to fight like men? This is what we mean. Uh, anybody ever seen that, uh, that movie, uh, Brave? It's a Disney kind of Pixar thing. Maybe not Pixar. Anybody seen that? It's got the, is, I'm the only one. Now raise your hand if you've seen it. Okay. Here, here's the, the scene that I love. And I've shared this before, but there's this scene where this big, uh, is it Mardu? Mardu, the bear, uh, that comes out of the woods and the little girl, she's playing and all the kids are playing. It's at a picnic and, uh, mom picks up the little girl and runs. And then, you know what the dad does? He picks up his sword and runs towards the bear. I love that because he comes and he attacks the enemy right there. You want to know how to fight the enemy? Dads, you bring your kids to church. You bring them to Sunday school and then you bring them into the service, have them sit right next to you. Show them how a man sings. It might be sounded kind of rough, but show them how a man sings. Show them that you bring your Bible. Pray for them in the morning before they go to school. Pray for them when they're about to go to bed. And, and, and show them how you read the Bible and how you love their mama. Cool? Cool? Well, that was a free part of the sermon. That wasn't even part of it. So I just wanted to encourage you, men, fight for your families fight for your family. So, well, here we're approaching the end of chapter six, just a few more times together, and uh, then we'll be done, but it's going to be a while, because uh, we've got just so much here. Uh, the last half of chapter six has just been Jesus teaching this giant crowd about who he is as the son of God, and, and what that means for those that, have, that he came to save, his followers. Now, let me just remind ourselves, let's just remind ourselves where we are in the chapter. So Jesus is teaching in the synagogue now, in the town of Capernaum. The synagogue is full to overflowing, but it's a much smaller crowd than the chapter began with, with a crowd of 20, 25,000 that sought to make him king by force. Now, this had been because Jesus had fed them this massive crowd with a few loaves of bread and fish. But as the crowd had had followed him now over to Capernaum and heard Jesus teach and claim to be the bread of life come down from heaven, and as he had pointed to their unbelief, even though they had seen, even though they had experienced this sign was clearly from heaven, they had begun to grumble. They had begun to complain. Uh, The word there in your text is murmur. The crowd following Jesus began to then peel away as he taught them. It's like they hear his teaching and they go, it's just too much. It's too much. As the conversation moves to the synagogue now, the Jewish leaders join in the fray. They begin to attack Jesus' character, first of all. They said, he's just a local boy. What would he know? Uh, We know his parents. We know his birth is of 
questionable uh, background uh, for who his dad is. But then Jesus, is, he doubles down on this teaching. He had simply up to this point been talking about himself as the bread from heaven. Not to just feed the body, but to feed the soul, right? But then he says in John 6, starting in verse 53, look at this. So Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and to drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Now, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, this is just my thoughts on here. Uh, I picture then like an awkward silence. He's just said the, the quiet part out loud. Because you might understand, this is a huge, huge claim. After you say something like that, that my blood, eat my blood, drink, I mean, eat my flesh, drink my blood, you can't unsay that. Think about this. If you were going to invent a new religion somehow, just from scratch, one that would attract as many followers as possible, you wouldn't say what Jesus just said here. You you wouldn't, you would promise health. You'd promise wealth. You'd promise lots of happiness, cash beyond your wildest dreams, happy days ahead. You'd promise everyone bluebell ice cream. Amen. But this isn't just a made up religion, is it? This is the truth Jesus lays down. The only way salvation is conceived in the mind of God, the father in eternity past, Jesus just lays it out. That is what Jesus has been saying to us. He's giving them the truth. And like Jack Nicholson says, and they can't handle the truth. Now, this is where we dive in. Remember, the crowd is now being represented by these Jewish leaders. And the crowd is clearly grumbling, led by these these guys. They're complaining. They don't like it. But a group of people began to speak that have not heard yet. These are the Jewish leaders. Uh, Here it is, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Now, the Jewish leaders have been listening or joining in, but now his disciples say this. It's not necessarily the 12, we'll get to that, but it's his disciples that start to complain. The guys that follow him, uh, we'll see in just a few verses uh, what this looks like after all of the disciples leave but the 12, but these are the people that have been following Jesus up to this point for almost three years now. His fans, his supporters, they were literally followers of Christ in a physical sense, They'd followed him from place to place. Apparently, Jesus has just gone too far for them. You've heard me for a few weeks tell you about chapter 6 is going to work like a funnel, right? 
You've heard me say that. At first of the chapter, thousands upon thousands believe and begin to follow Jesus. At least at a mental level, they want to make him king by force. Because he gives them physically what they want. More food. More bread, more fish. But as Jesus teaches the crowd, his teaching becomes this funnel that starts to drive away those that are not true followers. The funnel is that Jesus is separating true believers from false believers. Now he's giving them this teaching, right? This doctrine of what it means to believe. And false believers, well, they self-select out. Here's the thing I want us to see. Write this down. Jesus' doctrine becomes the measure of his followers' discipleship. Jesus' doctrine becomes the measure of his followers' discipleship. In other words, when the people had heard the fine print of what Jesus is talking about, of what true following Jesus, true discipleship really meant, they were not interested. And remember, this wasn't Jesus' enemies, the Jewish leaders. They're there too. These are his disciples. This is clearly those who had followed him up to this point, thinking in their head, this is the Christ he's returned for us. Now, this is sad to me, and it may surprise us, but it was not at all a surprise to Jesus. Everyone wants Jesus until you read the fine print, right? And what had been that fine print that was now turning these people away? Look at verse 60 in your Bible again. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Two words I want us to look at. The first word is heard. You can underline it there. When many of his disciples heard it, the word here in the Greek is, uh, is uh, pronounced akua, akua. Here it is. Heard, akua, means to listen attentively, understand the meaning, to hear a legal case. They have heard it. They have weighed it. They've listened attentively now. This is what you're saying, Jesus Is this it? This is it. They said, okay, we have the meaning. Jesus had drilled down on what his meaning is in the text or who he is, what he is expecting of his followers, and they finally listen. Now, maybe before they were just caught up in the excitement, all the people, the thousands of people, the crowd, the miracles, the food, the full bellies, But now they're really listening to him. Now, what are they getting? Well, Jesus had just said over and over that this is the truth. I'm telling you that I am the bread of life and you must consume my flesh, drink my blood. To get to God the Father, you must come through me, Jesus says. Meaning that you can't believe only partway to that level of mental ascent with your brain that we've talked about. He says, you must live your whole life trusting in who I am and nothing else for your salvation. 
to follow me, to give up anything else that you have placed the meaning of your life on. Even good stuff, family, other things like that. You've got to give that meaning up and follow me. And, and that brings up the second word here in verse 60. Underline this, the word hard. When the disciples complain and say to each other, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? The Greek word here is skleros, skleros. Here it is, hard, skleros, means harsh. A difficult word, excessively heavy, meaning I can't pick it up, got a little. You with me? So it's, we've listened, we finally understand what you're saying, and this is just too heavy to carry. For you old hippies in the audience here, I see a few of you, you go, dude, this is heavy. (laughs) You get the meaning. They hear, they understand what Jesus is saying, and they find it harsh, difficult, excessively heavy to accept. Now, don't get the wrong meaning here. It doesn't mean that this is hard to understand. It's not complicated. Rather, what they're saying is, now that we do understand what you're saying, this is too much to tolerate. We don't like it. The cost is too high. In other words, they left because they understood what Jesus was so, was saying was so contrary to their own views of salvation, they would not accept it. Now, this is a heart check time for us, isn't it? I mean, for us at Bentry, those sitting in the room, those listening online, as we read through this, we're, we're saying, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. I'm going to be a Christian. But then as we hear more and more, we're saying, It's just too much. I can't do that much. For this crowd that has left and now these disciples that have been following him, they are complaining that these teachings are a hard thing. In other words, understanding his doctrine is not hard. It's really clear. It's not hard to understand. It was the crowd's unwillingness now to accept what they now understand. And what is the doctrine that they find so offensive? What's so hard to follow? Well, to be honest with you, they're the same ones we hear from people today who won't follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. Same ones. I see three big ones here. Write these down. Uh, Let's take a look. Number one here. Three doctrines that people find hard to believe. Number one, the doctrine of Christ incarnation. This is Christianity 101. The doctrine of Christ's incarnation. What is the doctrine of incarnation? That this all-powerful, all-knowing God who has always existed took on the flesh of man and came to live in a finite human body. Jesus has said that he was the true bread that has come down from heaven. Uh, You saw that in verse 33, 38, and 51. Now, don't miss what that means. That although Jesus had been born of the Virgin Mary, that he existed before that from eternity past, and that he therefore had this very special relationship with God the Father. He was one with God the Father, God the Spirit. Now, second of the three doctrines people find hard to believe, here it is, that Jesus was teaching that he had to go to the cross 
and die. He had already started to tell them that. That's, prob- that's, that's what he's saying. And he must, you must eat my body and drink my blood. That Jesus was teaching that he had to go to the cross. That that was the Father's plan. Now look back, if you would, at verse 51 for just a moment. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I'm going to be nailed to the cross. I'm going to take the full wrath of God of the sins of all those who would believe. The giving of the bread of his flesh given as a substitute for us. He becomes the bread of life that we can eat by how? Believing in him as Savior and Lord. Someone say amen. Amen. Now why is this so hard for us to understand? The answer is it's not. I mean, if this crowd hears Jesus say that a person should have to pay for his own sin and die for their sin, then maybe they could understand that they might be able to earn their salvation through their own death and suffering. Like, if you had to die, but then your, your own death might pay for your sin, and then God might say, save you, that's a doctrine the people could get behind. Like, I'll die for myself, and I'll, I'll save myself. But that's not what Jesus is saying, is it? He's saying, there is no way for you to earn your own salvation, even if you died. The hard thing is to agree with is that Jesus is the only way to God. That's hard. That it was only Jesus who could earn salvation. And on top of that, they would have to receive salvation as a free gift from him or not receive it at all. In other words, you can't pay for it. I think this is the primary way that turns people away from the gospel. This is the stumbling block we talked about last week that presents itself that there are no good people on earth. Every one of us a worm. Every one of us guilty, worthy of hell. That we can't save ourselves. We have no ability to come to Jesus. We can only receive it as a gift. That even our acceptance of what Christ has done for us isn't the thing that regenerates us. Listen to me. Even the acceptance of what Jesus Christ has done for us isn't the thing that regenerates us. But that he regenerates us first and then we accept it. I know some of you struggle with that. That regeneration precedes faith. People find that objectionable. To say the least. They so want to have a part in their salvation. To somehow say, without my decision, God could never save me. Explaining to God what he can and can't do. But then the third doctrine of Jesus that people find hard to believe is this. Jesus taught that the reason they did not believe was that On their own, they could not believe unless God the Father had given them to Jesus. Now make sure you get this. Jesus repeats it three times. Jesus taught that the reason they did not believe was that on their own, they could not believe unless 
God the Father had given them to Jesus. Now over the last few months together, what we've seen here is that Jesus is teaching, it makes up a system of the doctrine we called Reformed Doctrine. It's the old school stuff. It's pre-American Christianity. That man's spiritual inability to please God on his own and therefore the absolute necessity of God's electing grace and salvation. Let me tell you, there's not a message in all the world that will raise the anger and the ire and rebellion of the human heart more than this doctrine. There's just not one. But it's what Jesus clearly teaches in John 6. I mean, you simply cannot get around the message of verse 44 when Jesus says, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Tell me how you get around that. The answer is you can't. The message makes up makes this crowd so upset and it makes his own disciples so upset that many of them began to leave. And yet Jesus doesn't hesitate to proclaim this message. Back then in Christ's time, all three of those doctrines, those people find so upsetting, run counter to their normal way of thinking. Messed up thinking, but thinking. Really, it's true to our way of thinking now, isn't it? Before Christ. We want to be in control of our destiny. Here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Are we willing to change our opinions on doctrine to conform to the teachings of Christ? Are we willing to change our opinions on doctrine to conform to the teachings of Christ? And you'd say... Paul, that's an obvious yes answer. But for 20, 25,000 people that claim to be followers of Christ, they go, no, he's going to need to follow what we say. So are we willing to change our opinions on, the, on doctrine to conform to the teachings of Christ? Or will we persevere in believing and basing our life on error? If we continue to call ourselves Christ followers, his disciples, we need to be willing to have our belief system corrected according to Jesus' teaching. Amen? Amen. And, And please, never, never, ever take my opinion on this stuff as a pastor, as a theologian. Always, always, always. How often? Always let your doctrine, what you believe is truth, be shaped by only the Word of God. Amen? Amen. Now, what we've got to constantly remember is to not evaluate spiritual truth by what we think it should be. Based on our own feeling, based on our own understanding. One of the scariest things I've heard Christians say is, I think God works this way. You go, you think or you read. We can't base our doctrine on what other people think. It should be on, uh, or on our clever analogies that we come up with. I've heard so many clever analogies, listen to me, that will lead straight to hell. We have to constantly compare what we think, what is true, to what the Bible actually says. Okay, back to verse 60. 
We started there and here we still are. Okay, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now remember, this is complaining about what Jesus had just said. This is what, but under, under their breath. Murmuring. That's literally the, the, the sound of Jesus knew they're complaining. Jesus knows everything. So we read in verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Jesus knows that most, all of them are about to pull away. He knows that and reject his teaching. So he says in verse 62, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now theologians disagree on this phrase, but you could make the case here that Jesus is looking forward to his crucifixion uh, crucifixion and resurrection. And this is what he's talking about. And then his ascension into heaven. And that'd be okay. This is just my opinion, an informed one, but I think what Jesus may be asking them is, what if I had not come? Get this, he's saying, do you think my doctrine is hard to accept? Well, what if I were to retract what I just said? What if I said, never mind, I'll just retract the whole thing. The plan of redemption of me taking on flesh of man and come in my body as a sacrifice for sin. What would you say then if I just retract it all? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's closing off all avenues, all other avenues to view salvation. What would we do? Or if I say, if Jesus never came as a man to live a perfect life, to take on himself the sins of all those who would believe, I should say, what could we do? The answer is, there's nothing we could do. I mean, for those that believe Jesus is is the Christ, the Messiah, our case would be hopeless, dark, desperate if he had never come. But praise God he did come. Amen? Amen? That all-powerful God took up residence in the body of a baby inside another body of the Virgin Mary. He did come. He did live the perfect life. He went willingly to the cross to give his life as a ransom for many. To pay our sin debt to God by becoming a sacrifice for sins of all those that the Father calls by his efficacious working of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit calls us. God the Father raised Jesus back to life on the morning of the third day. And don't miss the significance of this resurrection. It would be impossible for us to place too much emphasis on the resurrection of Christ. Impossible. Because it shows us that his death was accepted by God the Father as payment for our sins. It means the whole gospel works. But it didn't stop there. His ascension back to the throne room of heaven where he is seated next to God the Father means he is actively interceding on our behalf right now. Praise God. He is actively interceding. He's praying for you as a believer. He's saying that's one of mine, that one too, right over there. He's praying for us. 
I look at all these truths and see my salvation not just made possible, but hear me, church. Salvation made secure. Like Romans says in Romans 5, 8, and 9, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For those that he calls to life and we believe we have been made righteous. Declared clean. Saved from the wrath of God. So I think Jesus is asking them, well, what if that that had never happened? What if I had not come? Then check out the next verse. This is amazing. Verse 63, John 6. It is the Spirit, notice the capital S, the Spirit, talking about the Spirit of God, the Spirit gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now notice the small s. He's saying, look, I'm speaking to you in your spirit. The ones that have been regenerated, you can hear this. I've been giving you this spirit and life. He doubles down again. He won't let go of this. Now notice that he says it is the spirit who gives life. Talking about that Holy Spirit. Now, And for good measure, he adds the flesh is no help at all. In other words, your thinking through it is no help at all. Your works, no help at all. Isn't he precluding our ability to add anything to our justification? He's precluding it. In other words, he's stopping. You can't add anything. This is what we learned way back in John 1 when the apostle says this about Jesus coming to save people. Look at verse 10 of John 1. He, talking about Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now watch this. Who were born not of blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. For everyone that goes, no, 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 Paul, let me explain to you, it's my will that I choose Jesus. Oh, you would be arguing with John then? You'd be arguing with that. Because he says no. Same message, right? People don't decide to come and are made alive. The Spirit regenerates them. Then they come to Christ in faith and follow Him. It is a miracle Every time someone's saved, not just someone that says, oh, I think I've decided. Well, praise God you decided, but you were brought to life. But again, don't take my word for it. Let's remember what Jesus says back in John 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I tell you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, look at the capital S, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Since we don't understand it, the spirit chooses. Now once again, Jesus makes it clear in his word. Regeneration precedes 
faith. I'll say it again. Regeneration precedes faith. Back to verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. Let me just do a check in real quick. Who gives life? The spirit. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is what? No help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, to the disciples that are rejecting him and his message. Jesus' point is that it is far better to have Christ's ministry, even though it has doctrines that are hard to swallow and believe, than to not have Christ at all. But then look at that second sentence in verse 63. Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Here's what we can know about this. Write this down. Real understanding of the truth comes only through the work of the Holy Spirit. Real understanding of the truth comes only through the work of the Holy Spirit. The crazy thing about this is the only ones that will be getting this right now are the ones that the work of the Holy Spirit is speaking through. There's people in this room going, I have no idea what he's talking about. What Jesus is saying is that it takes the Spirit of God in us to begin to understand the teaching of Jesus. And that is on purpose. I find it incredibly interesting that the concept is not hard to understand. But it actually brings up an interesting thought though. Have you ever been like, man, it would have been so cool to just sit there at Jesus' feet and hear him teaching and preaching, seeing people healed. Like you just have been right there to, to hear his actual voice, to see his face, to travel with he and his disciples. And I'm sure it would have been wonderful to have that experience. But I find it so, what I find so interesting is that there were tons of people that had done just what I just described to you and then turned away. That, my friend, shows it's got to be the Spirit. They saw miracles. The literal miracle of their belly being full of bread was still in their stomachs, and they're turning away. We might be thinking, but that would not have been me. I would have believed. But it didn't help any of those people turning away, did it? To be physically in the presence of Jesus. Jesus had been teaching that it was the truth of what? His words, his message, and the sign that they were to bless them, not a physical outward appearance. Look at this. Like our point we just wrote down, real understanding of the truth comes only through the work of the Holy Spirit. Even those people sitting right there, they could only be brought to life by the work of the Holy Spirit. There there was... This time we read about, you'll remember in Luke 11, verse 27. It's talking about Jesus. As, he says, as he said these things, a woman, woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that which you nursed. But he, Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now the lady was making a point of what a blessing it was. For Mary, the mother of Jesus, to be Jesus' mother. But Jesus is saying, you, 
You really want to know a bigger blessing? You want to know a bigger blessing? It is those who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, those that have believed because the spirit of God had made them alive at the direction of God the Father. Over the years I've been a pastor, I've had people thank me for preaching the truth of the gospel and it always feels nice. It does. They, have, they say something like, Pastor Paul, it was your preaching that led me to Jesus. And although it sounds right, at first it's not. You see, I was simply the instrument that the Holy Spirit of God used. Here's the truth. When someone gets saved, truly born again, under my preaching or any other preaching, through or you're sharing the gospel at Starbucks, here's what really happens. Regeneration takes place when the word of God is carried to the spiritual understanding by the supernatural intervention of God's Holy Spirit. I know that's a lot, so make sure you follow it. Regeneration takes place, being born again takes place when the word of God is carried to the spiritual understanding by the supernatural intervention of God's Holy Spirit. Outward signs of our belief are great. They're so good. I love it when we see that. Things like prayer and baptism and repentance. Man, wonderful. But those come because regeneration at the command of God the Father through the working of the Holy Spirit. What's scary is when false doctrine starts to creep into the church that says, no, 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 no. You need to understand baptism saves you. No, taking communion saves you. Reading your Bible saves you. Or even even this is going to hurt some of your feelings. A prayer of salvation saved you. Or your decision saved you. What do these things, what do those things, because we do those things because we are saved. You hear me? This is crystal clear in Jesus' teaching. Those are all good, great things. They are evidence of your faith. You are given the ability to come to Christ. How do we know? Jesus says it three times in John 6. We pray a prayer of repentance because we have been made alive. We are baptized because we have been regenerated. We repent of our sins because we have been made alive. Amen? Amen? Now, back to Jesus here in John 6. Those people are complaining, and Jesus has just laid it out for them. And they're upset. They are so upset, not because they are confused. No, no, they're upset because now they understand Jesus is being so clear. They go, uh, we can't have any of this. And now Jesus points, he puts a, a, a bow on it. He says, here's the little bow. He says in verse 64, he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. And they're going, look, we just followed you from around the lake. We just hiked all this way. He said, no, there's some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. For a third time, uno, dos, tres, Jesus tells the crowd, You don't believe 
and that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. I mean, how many times does he have to say that until we agree with him? Now, what's very interesting is something that will hit in depth soon. God willing, that even in their midst, I'm, take, uh, I'm talking about the remaining 12, the, the core group. Maybe a few family members, but it says just the core group. Even there, there was a wolf in sheep's clothing, wasn't there? Judas would betray him to death. And we see it right here that Jesus even knew that. Here's the confusing uh, part for so many Christians uh, around Jesus' teaching on salvation. Is that mankind has tried to overlay his opinion over scripture. Like, let me tell you what Jesus meant. We just lay it over. Our default mode is that we make salvation all about us and what we do. Rather, it is about what Jesus has done. Unlike every other religion, Christianity is a done versus do. But we keep trying to make it a do versus done, like every other religion. Now, when we make it about us, something that we do something to be saved instead of it being the work of God alone, we always wonder, was it enough? Was it enough? Did I I do enough? Did I believe hard enough to, to be saved? Like, did I do too much or too little? Now get me, get me. A true believer in Christ Jesus will begin to produce spiritual fruit. Love, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, self-control. Being slow to anger. Abounding in what? Love. But hey, that fruit is sometimes, it's sometimes hard to see at first when you're in the middle of a hard time. It is. And sometimes we might be tempted to lean on our emotion and ask, but do I feel saved today? Do you do that? I do that. But it's not about a feeling, is it? It's about the work of God, what God is doing in our life and what Jesus has done on the cross. That's why we have to trust what we know to be true. And that is the Bible, the words of Jesus. So, what will you do? Will you believe in the words of Christ Jesus? Right here. Or trust your own instincts and turn away like these people are doing. You've read the fine print. These words that Jesus was speaking were not directed at those people, just directed at those people of that day. They're directed to you and me. Supernaturally, those words are directed at you and me. If you're not a Christian, here's your obligation. Read God's word for yourself. Reflect on it. Read John 6 right here. Follow those words wherever they lead you. And on the other hand, if you are a Christian, what is your obligation here? To take these words of Jesus to the world where you live. To actually use your mouth, use your vocal cords to share the gospel with the world where you live. Your friends, your coworkers, your family. Yes, we have other obligations as believers, for sure. We need to feed the hungry. Amen? We need to pray for the sick. We need to 
take care of the widow and the orphans and comfort the ones in sorrow and care for those people hurting. We need to stand up for justice. But we do those things, listen to me, because we love God, because He has given us a love for the people of the world. To do those other things without sharing the gospel is like giving a cup of cold water to someone on the way to hell and saying, see ya. We share the gospel. We care for people not to save ourselves, but because we are saved. But remember, all these things we do for the world around us and caring for others means nothing if we don't also give them the words of life. Last week, I used the analogy of me bringing God's words to us like a kind of spiritual meal. Some of you remember that because you were real hungry at the time. Spiritual meal that whoever's preaching, we prepare. We make some steak and fajitas, steak fajitas. We'll throw some chicken in for people that don't like steak. We provide meat, potatoes, the good stuff. We don't just give you, here's some pixie sticks for you to sweet, (laughs) sweet stuff. You, you, you need, you need to feed on the words of God. You go, well, I've been a Christian all my life. No, no, no. You need to feed on the words of God. That's why I beg you, don't miss church. What's talking about, it's what it's talking about here that makes them so mad. He says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, consume my words, make them a part of you, digest them, take his words of life, consume them, and let them consume you. Think through what they mean and how you need to live your life based on these words. Don't be discouraged. You'll always be tempted to turn back. Me too. I'm as serious as I can be. But keep on keeping on all the way to the end of your life until Jesus returns and takes us out of this world. Proclaim the gospel message of Christ Jesus to the very end and watch what the Spirit does as He brings people to new life with the words that you spoke to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we pray, as we seek your face, God, through worship, through repentance of our sin, through reading your words and studying them. God, I pray that you would help us to digest this, that you would take us to a place of knowing what your word means, what it does. God, show us how we, we need to live our lives. For those of you that are Christians, you begin praying right now. For those of you that you don't know you're a Christian or maybe you go, no, I'm not a Christian. Would you just look up here at me? I just want to talk to you for just a moment. Listen, I can bring you to the place of life, but I cannot make you drink. I cannot make you consume these words. Only the Spirit can do that. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you believe that He came to earth, took on flesh, lived a sinless life, was crucified and raised to life by God the Father on the third day. Listen to me. You have been regenerated. But maybe your life doesn't look like it. Pray right now. You remember remember the railroad tracks I've been talking about? God calls us. He is sovereign. 
He's the one that calls us to life. But the same truth right next to it is that we must believe. So repent. Repent of your unbelief. Repent of sin. Repent of being uh, your own king and not Jesus being your king. Here's the deal. If Jesus is who he says he is and you believe, your sins have been washed away. You have been given new life, not because you're making a decision. You have been brought to life right now. So the decision you're making is, I will follow Jesus. Will you do that? Will you pray, Jesus, I don't know what I'm doing. Will you pray, forgive me of my sins. Will you pray, God, show me how to live this life. Maybe you have some addiction out there. Maybe you have some habit that you formed and you go, but that would keep me away. Now listen, Jesus' blood covers everything. But you're right. It's hard to break the pattern sometime of sin. We can help with that. Just a, a minute after the band, band plays here at the end of our service, we'll have elders up here and, and they'll be ready to pray with you and their wives will be up here. And if you would come and pray and say, "May I, I just decide to become a Christ follower. I believe I'm going to follow him. But pray for me because maybe I have, maybe I have an addiction to, to porn. Maybe I, I, have, I have this habit of drinking too much. Maybe I have this thing where I've been cheating on my wife or I've been lying. Whatever it is, you've been forgiven of it. But let's break the chain of sin. Pray with those elders. Come up and say, hey, I'm a Christian. Show me how I can follow the Lord. Tell me how I can be baptized. We'll end your prayer like this. Jesus, thank you for saving me. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I want to follow you to my dying day. Can you pray that? Show me what steps to take. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.